Hello and welcome to The Strad Podcast. I'm Davina Shum, I'm a cellist and I'm the online editor at The Strad. Our September magazine focuses on education, with features on Pinkus Zuckerman's approaches to pedagogy, string teaching in regional Western Australia, 50 years of the Newark School of Violin Making, and more. In this episode, I chat to pedagogue and cellist Richard Markson about how to teach the concept of sound and tone. It's not necessarily the easiest thing in the world. Richard is a former student of cello greats Paul Tortelier and Pierre Fournier and holds a senior fellowship at Trinity Laban Conservatoire of Music and Dance in London. He speaks about the importance of singing, organic movement and listening to a range of music, not just string players, in an effort to communicate tricky concepts across to students. Have a listen. Richard, welcome to the Strad podcast. Uh, We're here today to talk about teaching sound and tone to students. Uh, And I know that you teach a wide range of students. Um, You teach at Trinity Laban here in London. Um, But first of all, how do you get the idea of a good sound across to students? In my experience, I've had students make certain noises on their instruments and in the background, there will be a parent wincing from the kitchen, um, perhaps. How do you get the idea of a good sound, good tone? Well, I think the most fundamental thing about every aspect of playing an instrument, not just about sound, but certainly including sound, is you have to have a concept before you start. It's not enough to think about sound as a mechanical thing, like it's how much, how you use the bow, or which angle, or how much weight, and all these things come afterwards. I think this is the same on any instrument. You, you have to actually hear in your mind a sound that you want to make. You have to have a musical concept. Once you've got a musical concept, then you explore all the various ways in which you can most efficiently produce the sound that you're looking for. I think if you don't have a musical idea in your mind, if you can make an ugly sound, and, it, and it's not just the parents that are wincing, but you're wincing as well, then it's probably not the best. All instrumental work has to start with a musical concept. Okay, so if you're teaching a child, for example, and you're trying to get across this idea of sound, they don't necessarily have a musical concept in their mind yet. What sort of method would you employ to do that? I mean, given that these might be children that perhaps don't listen to a lot of music, how would you enlighten them to these different concepts? Well, maybe you would get them to sing the, the, whatever it is first. Ask them to sing the melody and see if you can see, work with that until they get some sort of idea of how they'd like to phrase it, how they'd like to shape it, and then move on to that. I mean, I'm not saying that there aren't all kinds of mechanical things that you have to incorporate. I mean, if you're going back to the very beginning, before you even play a tune, I'd once had a child of a children in Jamaica, about seven or eight years old, and I just got them to you know, lift their arm up and just kind of drop it naturally on the bow. Basically, they, they positioned the bow on the string with their left hand at the frog, and then I just got them to drop the arm. And then that position, in each case... They had the perfect alignment of the arm, the forearm, the upper arm, the wrist, fingers and everything. Of course, they had to adjust the fingers a little bit, but essentially, they already had it. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's completely wrong when people try to 
and I'll say, oh, no, you must put this finger here, and you must put that finger there, yeah. and all this kind of thing, because you you end up getting so screwed. I mean, what, one of the things I've, I've done with older students, again, speaking more mechanically, perhaps, I get them to do something physical, like turn the page on a piece of music or whatever it may be, and then I'll ask them, now, can you explain to me, without repeating it, can you explain to me exactly what you did with your body? Mm -hmm. And they'll tell me, well, I leant forward, um, yes, but which part of your body moved first? Oh, it was my upper body. No, it wasn't. It was your foot. Basically, analyzing it, and, and the point I, I get to with that is that there are so many really complicated, sophisticated things that we do with our bodies, which nobody ever taught us how to do. Uh, you, you, you know, if you're brushing your teeth, nobody actually said you have to hold the toothbrush <laughs> like this. You know, and if you're eating, you tend to know where your mouth is. So what you have to do often with an older student is to unlearn things that you've learned in an unnatural way mm -hmm. and go back to, okay, what's natural? My, my brother was a a very good tennis player, but I was hopeless. But I do remember tennis lessons in which the poor teacher talked a lot about how to place the feet for the stroke and for that stroke. And of course, I realized that, especially playing the cello or the violin, you do put weight on your feet. Mm -hmm. I sometimes ask people, where does the down bow start? And the answer will be, oh, it starts in my, my arm, or it starts here. But so actually, it really starts with your right foot. Yeah, we actually had an article about Alexander Technique and their grand motto is great playing starts at the feet, making sure that there's this foundation of grounding so that you have that from which to build everything else. In terms of teaching bow holds, there's only so much that you can learn by micromanaging every single finger and coming up with a more organic, natural way of teaching these concepts. Are you a firm believer of analogies in your teaching? If I have a, a student with whom I share a language, then analogies can be quite useful. It also depends on the student. There are some students who will just take one look, split second, at what you're doing, and immediately they're doing it. You don't have to say anything. In other cases, the analogies can be very helpful. I think you have to tailor how much mm. you talk yes, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> to, to the student. Definitely because you are going to get some students that don't respond well to particular methods of teaching. So, yeah, I agree there. You have to tailor your methods. I'm just curious to know, in terms of going back to tone, what are some tried and tested ways for you that has gained the most success? So you mentioned the children that you're teaching in Jamaica, just getting them to relax their arm mm -hmm. on the bow. What other exercises would you recommend that teachers try and implement? I think there are millions of exercises that are very good, but I can't emphasize strongly enough how important it is for you to hear the sound that you want to make and, and to develop the, the musical side of things. As a child, I remember my father putting on recordings of Chrysler and hearing that golden sound on the, on the, on the violin, and then I listened to Casals and I listened to Fumier, who later became my teacher. I remember when I heard Fumi for the first time, I thought, what a gorgeous sound he made. And I'm sure unconsciously or subconsciously, I was trying to imitate that. So all that part of the musical background, I think, can't be overlooked. I think very often people just sit down with the instrument and they think that's the starting point. Ideally, it should not be the starting point. The starting point should be to actually listen to music, to have a sort of general feeling. 
But coming back to specifics, we talked a little bit about how to use your body. One extremely important thing, which I think is often neglected, is the importance of the, the fingers. You know, the French call it la cuisson. For example, Chef Chic was very keen on that. I actually think his 40 variations are um, excellent exercises for the body. If you do them properly, yeah. you can also do them badly. <laughs> <laughs> we actually had a project at Trinity where I, I invited my late teacher, um, Paul Tofaria, with his wife, Maud, to come and do a masterclass on the 40 variations. And we, we got the entire college of string players, you know, from double bass to violin. And we went through every single variation with her sitting in the middle. Uh, and that was a really interesting project because it's all about bow contact. But she said repeatedly, and they come, keep on coming back, it sounds like a light motif, doesn't it? She would say, you have to make music with the technique, you know. So she was always saying, make music with the technique, you know. Yeah. But mean, meanwhile, you needed the technique as well. Yes, that goes back to what you were saying before. You've got to have that idea in your head of your musical concept and then working on these technical exercises to facilitate that. Otherwise, it doesn't really work the other way around. It helps. The story I heard about Tofedi, that when he went to the kibbutz in Israel, where he spent a year, various disciples went out and he said, I am at your service. I will teach you whatever you like. Would you like to study technique or musicianship? And everybody said, oh, technique, technique, technique. They said, very well, we shall study technique. And uh, tell me, musically, everything is okay? <laughs> How far did they get? <laughs> so one final thing that I wanted to touch on. Tell me your thoughts on the role of breathing when teaching sound and tone and musicality. Let's start at the other end, if you don't mind. If you're giving a performance, I would say that that performance could be regarded as a success if the audience is breathing with you. Yep. And that is a matter of how you shape the phrases and all the rest of it. I mean, the breathing has to be a musical thing. And again, it comes back to music. When you sing a phrase, where do you breathe? And, and, and most people have a, an instinctive sense of where they have to breathe if they sing, even if they sing badly. One thing which is terribly important, and which the old masters really did master to an extent that perhaps not everyone has today, was how to breathe with the bow. The one thing I remember particularly about the people I worked with, with whom you were talking to, and of course if you look at Casals as another example of this, or, or Feuermann, that they could lift the bow off the string anywhere, and they could land on the string again anywhere, and immediately have contact with the bow on the string. And they did that in order to let the sound breathe, mm -hmm. in order to shape the phrase. Whereas what you tend to get for certain more modern ways of playing is that the bow goes on the string and then stays there and never comes off. It never comes off, and then you get a very, very uh, penetrating, focused sound, right? And there's, there's no variation. It may um, not even be focused. It's just sort of constant and without yeah. the, the same pressure all the time, the same speed all the time and all sort of thing. And to me, it's such a lesson to yeah. to listen to these older masters, um, to listen and to watch. But you know, I mean, not, not just cellists. I mean, also important to look at violinists, look at the way in which Thibault, for example, controlled his bow or, or Chrysler. Chrysler tended to use not very much bow, apparently. But there was never any question when the bow was on the string, it immediately spoke. Useful to listen to not only cellists, but violinists, 
but also wind players as well brass players singers it can be so invaluable for me in my experience if I've had an audition or something and I've played to a wind player a flute player the things that they'll pick up it's always to do with breathing as string players I think we need to be told that more there's a very great French oboe player called Maurice Bourg and at one stage we were doing joint master classes in Dublin. Remember, we discussed all this. He used to play in the Orchestre Paris. And he said to me, he said, you know, when I was sitting there in the, in the, with my oboe and a string player came along as a soloist, I said, I don't know why. Maybe you can explain it to me. But after they played the first note, I already knew whether it was going to be any good. <laughs> and that was to do with the way they produced the sound. Yeah. And, of course, apart from breathing... The other thing that goes along with that, in the case of wind playing, is articulation, the embouchure, how you actually articulate. And there again, this is something which all the great string players had, was the ability to put the ball on the string and for it to speak. Whether it starts legato or staccato, or the, the million things that there are in between, you always have the sense when you listen to these people that it, the sound is engaged from the moment the ball makes contact with the string. I know that wind players, they talk a lot about having a, a certain sound, perhaps a consonant or a certain vowel in their head. That's an analogy that I, use, I do use, and I think, it's a, I think it's a very good one. You know, I ask somebody to sing a phrase, and they'll sing it with some consonants and some vowels, and I say, okay, so it wasn't all vowels, was it? Mm-hmm. So then let's think how we can articulate to, to emulate that. But it's always organic, it's always a sense that that the whole body is involved, mm. even if it seems as if you're hardly moving at all. Yeah, but it's not, it's not forced, and it's not just coming from one isolated part of your body. So I think um, it would be useful to sum up our conversation today, because we've covered quite a large amount of ground. But initially I asked, you know, how do you get across that concept of tone to students? And I think we've talked a lot about having that musical concept in your mind and thinking about singing, articulation, consonants and vowels, but also listening to other musicians, right? I think it's very important to practice without vibrato, but to to try to focus the sound and engage the sound as much as possible so that the sound vibrates of its own accord, which also means playing tune, of course. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Yeah, that helps. It's just um, a simple thing. <laughs> yeah. Just a simple thing that very few people manage. That, that is terribly important so that the vibrato becomes almost like a sort of varnish that you add at the end. Yeah. Well, there's that quote, right? It's um, like, vibrato is like ketchup. You don't want to put it over all your food. Although some people do. I don't know if that's really a quote, but that's just an analogy I've seen on social media. I don't think um, Haydn would have known very much about it catch up. Um, but but it, it is interesting to me that um, Leopold Mozart, in his famous book, you know, about the violin, about the treatise, the treatise, yeah. yes, yeah. complained that people use too much vibrato, uh-huh. which some people interpret as meaning that you shouldn't use any, but which I interpret as meaning that actually people did use vibrato these days, and there's no reason why we shouldn't, as long as we do it tastefully. Exactly. It's like a, a certain amount of catch-up is good, but not over everything. Richard, thank you for this very wide-ranging conversation we've had about sound production, tone production, and musical concepts today on the podcast. Thank you. That was Richard Markson, 
If you're interested in more teaching guides and profiles, you can check out our education hub on thestrad.com, as well as our dedicated pages of tone, bowing, and many other aspects of technique on our playing hub. And check out our September magazine if you're interested in reading more featured stories on education. Don't forget to head to our website, thestrad.com, to check out the latest news, articles, and reviews on all things to do with string playing. And if you like what you see and hear, register and subscribe to access exclusive archival content from 2010 onward. We've got 50% off an online subscription for students. And if you're not sure you're ready to subscribe, take out a free trial for seven days. Start reading right away with no strings attached. Also, if you happen to be on Apple Podcasts right now, give us a little review or rating. It helps people discover the podcast. Thanks for listening and tune in again soon for another episode. Take good care. Bye.